Last week, we really hung our hats on a single peg, on a phrase that Jesus seems to put at the very heart of how he understands not just himself and his world, but his scripture, his faith. God is God of the living. And we saw how that conviction played out in the temple court. As he was questioned by the Sadducees, who tried to pick apart his hopeful world and reduce it to their level of cynicism and daily grief. This week, today, is the next part of the story. The next part of two stories, in fact, is the next very next scene in Luke as we move through that gospel, and it describes the aftermath of some of the conversation with the Sadducees in the temple. But it is also the next part of the story of the temple itself, where last week we talked about the prophet Haggai, who incited the people upon their return to Jerusalem from bondage, from being held in captivity in Babylon, incited them to seize the day to start building a temple, even if it's only going to be made out of rubble and rough stone. Don't wait on perfection, but seize the present moment and begin construction. Today, we will look at how that temple developed What happened to that temple bound up in the very same moment, the very same conversation of Jesus in Luke? So we will go through the three scriptures we read this morning, Isaiah 65, 2 Thessalonians, and Luke 21, now in reverse order, seeing how they reflect this same, this ongoing story. The story of how the God of the living asks us to respond and expects us to behave. Five hundred years have passed since Haggai's words were heard in Jerusalem. Five hundred years the second temple has stood now. Or at least a second temple has stood. Because now it stands transformed. No longer a small structure built of rubble and half-cut stone. It has been renovated, recreated. And I want us to imagine that we are a Judean. Someone who has lived near Jerusalem all of her life. Let's go with the name Rebecca, because it was one of the most common names at the time. And let us imagine that Rebecca has grown up her whole life hearing of the temple. Hearing, firstly, from the people who have been there and seen it and participated in the sacrifices and songs and rituals of the people of Israel. But then also has heard the temple spoken of in glowing, angelic terms in Scripture. A temple that young Rebecca longs to see for herself. And so she has finally been gotten old enough to take the journey herself, the long walk up to this hill citadel, 
singing the psalms as they travel together, eating the flatbread along the road, walking as part of the very sacrifice that they intend to offer once they arrive. They get there and the place is packed, swarming with people, some shouting, some in silent prayer, some in quiet conversation. And then along the sides where the steps rise up from the central portico, there are the people who think highly of themselves, standing and talking, gathering a crowd around them, some of them, as they teach on this question of the law or recite that passage of scripture. But one of them's got a much bigger crowd than anybody else. One of them has a cluster that's been growing all morning, surrounding a man standing on some steps, just high enough to be seen and heard above the crowd, at times preaching, at times answering hecklers and challenges. This is Jesus laying out a message of a new Jerusalem to the people in front of him, challenged continually by those who would snipe at him. The crowd around him started first thing in the morning with only a dozen, but by the time it's noon and Rebecca has been there for a few hours, she can see that what was a dozen has become a hundred and a hundred a thousand until it feels like the whole court that can hold 400,000 people when fully packed. The whole court is listening in some way or another, even if they're all the way across the way and they only hear his words in tidbits, the hottest sound bites running through the crowd, repeated mouth to ear, ear and mouth. And these, guys, these sound bites are hot. Pithy is what they call it. Which, when I was growing up and heard that Jesus was a pithy preacher, I always thought that meant kind of weak or soft or only superficial or something bad. It turns out the word pithy just means speaks in sound bites. It's exactly what we describe in our politicians and our speakers today. Pithy means that you've got great one-liners. And Jesus was famous for his words racing through the crowd because he had some really great one-liners. One he tosses out this morning, on this day, is, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. The temple is a buzz. The temple feels threatened. You boo when you hear it. Rebecca waited her whole life to see this temple. And a couple others join in, but the crowd doesn't. Why, you ask? Turning to an older woman at your side, and she twists her mouth like she's going to spit, but doesn't out of respect for the temple. Built by Herod the Great, she says, the great, she says. You know, Augustus Caesar once said, it's better to be Herod's pig than his son. At least the pigs don't get killed in the middle of the night. 
And Herod had three of his own children slaughtered alongside many, many others in his hard scrabble to the top. Built a beautiful temple, sure, and there's many of us were grateful to him for it, she says. But we also felt like we were being bought off, especially given all the other things he was building, most of them for himself. This temple, you come to realize, is a contradiction. A huge, grand building attracting Judean pilgrims and Greek tourists alike, the centerpiece of an ancient and highly respected religious practice, its huge stone walls emphasizing its permanence, its importance. But as for permanence and ancient practice, those walls aren't that old. You may be standing at the location of Haggai's second temple, which has 500 years of history. But the oldest foundation stones you can see would be 40 to 50 years old, built by Herod the Great. And some of the most impressive portions of the temple, including its great staircase with a massive arch leading onto the upper plateau, would have still been under construction when you were born and Jesus was a teenager coming to visit for the first time himself. Now, perhaps to you and I, 40 to 50 years seems like a good, healthy age for a giant structure. But to the ancients, to Rebecca, to the old woman she's talking to, it's the blink of an eye. This place is brand spanking new. And it was built by a man who squeezed his people into starvation to fund construction projects just like this. So when Jesus says, not one stone will stand atop another, not everybody in the crowd boos. Because to many of them, they have very conflicted feelings about the temple as it stands. Its magnificence certainly spoke to God's majesty, but the king whose hand built it was brutal and despised. And Jesus doesn't stop there. His vision goes on, his words echoing above your head as the crowd becomes silent in the wake of the few feeble boos. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines, and pestilences in various places and fearful events and great signs from heaven. Luke 21, verses 10 and 11. You listen. Rebecca, along with many others, believe. And you, alongside perhaps a few from your family and a few newfound friends, follow. You stay. You stick with him. You work your way through the layers of crowd, closer and closer and closer, until by the finally mid-afternoon, you're close enough to see his face and to be heard yourself. And you ask the teacher, knowing that this dread in your heart 
will not be abated until the doom has come, knowing that what he says is true, that the temple will be destroyed and that its doom spells doom for Jerusalem, perhaps Judea, perhaps the world. And so you ask the teacher, what do I do? He says, make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. Everyone will hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will perish. Stand firm and you will win life. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, he goes on to say, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out and let those in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment in fulfillment of all that has been written. And then, after speaking about how soon all of this destruction will come on temple, city, and countryside alike, within a generation, he says, be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you will be able to stand before the Son of Man. That is the full message of Luke 21. That is what those standing in the temple court that day would have heard. Our lectionary passage ends on the most hopeful sentence in the entire segment, in the entire chapter. Not a hair of your heads will perish. Stand firm and you'll win life. But after that, Jesus goes back on to talk about how to survive this coming disaster in, in immediately practical terms. Run for the hills. If you're in the city, get out of the city. If you're near the city, run for the hills. Save yourselves. Survive. Even as the world collapses around you. We don't know, you and I, most of us, what it is like to watch a city collapse around us. We don't know what it is like to see the starving and the wounded in the streets, to hear their cries. But we know, we may not know what it is like to walk in a devastated city, but we do know what it's like to walk in a devastated soul. So as we read this Luke passage, one that predicts a terrible destruction, I believe it behooves us to remain humble about our perspective, remain humble that we ourselves have not tasted destruction like what Jesus predicts and like what Jerusalem suffered. But these passages still carry for us immediate, much-needed, life-giving truth that speaks directly to our lives as well. Rebecca, who has known nothing but good green days for all of her youth, has still seen some hard things, felt some hard things. And the words of the teacher speak to her immediate life. But as the decades roll on, she also 
sees the words of the teacher speak to the fate of Jerusalem. And indeed, the temple is destroyed. The city is burned and the people are dispersed. The teacher told you to keep going. And so now, Rebecca, it has been 50 years since that day in the temple court. You obeyed Jesus and lived. You got out of town along with the entire Christian community, as recorded by the historian Josephus, fled Jerusalem when it was besieged by the Romans and survived. And in time, you made your way to a new city, a rich city, Thessalonica, far from home, but where you make a new home among the followers of Jesus. Its greatest feature is its relative peace. Less bloodshed in the streets, less civil strife. Life is better, but it's still very hard. You've had children. You've lost a few children. And you lean, as you have since your days of youth, on Scripture. On Isaiah 65. For I am about to create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. Words that are pure water on a burning heart. Balm on a wounded soul. That the shame and destruction of Jerusalem that happened in the days of Isaiah that you have seen happen when the Romans entirely eradicated the city and expelled its entire Jewish population will not be remembered nor come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating, says the Lord, for I am about to create Jerusalem as a joy and its people as a delight. Young Rebecca, now old, still hangs her heart on this beautiful oracle, on these words from Isaiah of a city enjoying peace. Your peaceful days in Thessalonica, when they come, are an echo of what you hope for. No more weeping, premature death, or destruction of property. It is hard for you to imagine Jerusalem remade, but to that image you cling. Here in Thessalonica, things are so different. And the young generation growing up in the family of Christ are talking about the scriptures and about Jesus himself in so many different ways. It's hard for you to follow. People are saying that when Jesus was talking about the destruction of the temple and his ability to rebuild it, he, was, he wasn't talking about the temple at all. He was a metaphor. He was talking about his own body, which would be destroyed and which you know has been re revived and still lives alongside the family with which you dwell in Thessalonica. You have seen Christ's spirit moving and walking in people, animating them to love, to do great things. And while the 
story that Jesus was only talking about his own body doesn't make a whole lot of sense to you. What about all those warnings to get out of town, the warnings that saved your life? Still, you see the spirit living in those people who talk about Jesus' work on the interior and Jesus' personal salvation. And so you're content to to accept that perhaps it was Jesus talking about both things, both the temple and his body. You're content to disagree. And then some of them start taking it really far. They're saying that because Jesus came to save the soul, what they call the inner man, along with the Greeks, then all that matters is that inner person, what we know and what we believe. They say Jesus won't take stock of any of these things in this world around us, but that when the day comes for the kingdom, he will snap his fingers and make a new world. Nothing in this old world counts for anything. They quote to you an old Judean, the Hebrew Scriptures. They quote to you Isaiah 65, the vision you have clung to your whole life. The former things will not be remembered, they say. So none of what we do now matters at all. Some of them, slaves especially, say these things so that they may hold up their heads against the indignity and pain that this world has heaped on them as a rejection of all of the hate that would otherwise well up in their hearts. And in them, you see Christ's spirit breathing, even as you struggle with some of their words. But others say those same words and use it as license to do nothing all day long. And the community of Christ is plagued with idleness. Idleness. You've seen it in three kinds of people. The first, who are so lost in their own philosophy and so convicted of their own view that they truly believe nothing matters. They seem almost more like cynic philosophers than like Christians living in the street from hand to mouth as though there were no concern. For them, they walk a path that you don't really understand, but perhaps they have some spiritual insight. But then there are those who found the people that take care of each other, who feed one another and house one another, and they're content to simply mooch. They have lucked into early retirement and see no need to contribute to the community at all. And then finally, you know one or two tourists. Rich folks who love to come and hear the fiery words spoken and sing the cool songs and watch a group of people experiencing Christ, God's spirit and see the animation and activity in them but not willing to put their lives or livelihoods on the line at all. Three kinds of idlers. The other, those convinced of an otherworldly belief, 
those who just want to live off the community, and those who are just along for the ride, just showing up to feel their hearts lifted by the music. So when a letter comes to Thessalonica, a second letter from Paul, you, Rebecca, have never been so happy to read a letter in your entire life. Paul rebukes this idleness first and foremost as not according to the tradition of teaching that they received from us. Rebukes this view, however it comes to be expressed, wherever it comes from, that what we do now doesn't matter. You don't know what the new Jerusalem will look like But you know that the idleness feels wrong somehow. It doesn't rest well with you. You can't poke holes in their argument necessarily. They certainly have their proof text out of Scripture. And Isaiah 65 is one of your very favorite passages. But they seem to have forgotten that Isaiah 65 then goes on to talk about babies not dying in infancy. Old folks being considered unlucky if they don't make it to a hundred and laborers receiving the benefits of their own labor, good hard work being left to pay off. Those are music to your ears, Rebecca. You who have seen a a long life of many days. And they don't seem particularly otherworldly to you. It sounds to you like you could still hope to see these things in the land of the living. Your view of God's new kingdom and the new Jerusalem is a little bit more impressionist, not a clear-cut cube of gold descending from heaven, not a world made exactly true to philosophical concepts, cut completely free from the moorings of history or this dusty earth. But you see rather something more living and flowing indeed from God's deeds in the past. I think Rebecca would have would be somewhat dumbfounded by the church that we live in today but I don't believe she would be entirely disoriented. I think that she might see in many of us the same sources of idleness, the same reasons to let our hands lie and do nothing. She would see plenty of people coming to church just wanting to feel good, and not willing to put their lives and livelihoods on the line. We certainly have our own fair share of tourists. And although she might not see quite as many moochers, she also would recognize that that's because we're not sharing as generously as we used to. And we do not live in the same kind of community as they did in Acts 4, 
where all property was held in common and shared out among believers. I hope that Rebecca would understand that we're trying and that we're trying to navigate a difficult balance between aiding and being exploited. But I think she would consider us rife with the first kind. With people whose beliefs about Christ and Christ's kingdom are so otherworldly that they think this planet doesn't matter. And they think how we treat the world has only matters insofar as it impacts our belief and our interior life. Certainly, belief and the interior life are important. Probably of primary importance. But to suggest that when God says, I will create all things new, a new heaven and a new earth, that this means that history will indeed be erased to the degree that all of God's acts in the past will be irrelevant, to the degree where we ourselves can behave poorly because everything we do is irrelevant, that extremity of belief smells bad. It smelled bad to Rebecca. It smelled bad to Paul. It feels wrong. You can find proof texts for it. I read some of, we read some of the most important ones today. But that doesn't mean it sits well with the Spirit of Christ. And it does not mean it leads to life and life abundantly in the Spirit of Christ. If there are those who preach that God will be remaking everything from scratch and they do so because the world, they see a world full of hate and horror and it allows them to stand up against it and it allows them to persevere, then I can respect it. It is in the fruits of their understanding of Scripture. It is in the fruits of their faith and in the walk in the spirit that they can be judged. But those who say the exact same words and use it as an excuse to allow the degradation and destruction of this planet and its people, even sometimes encouraging the degradation and destruction of this planet and its people, coming right out and saying, thus we hasten the coming of the kingdom by making things worse. That is a horror and a betrayal of the gospel. And it is not true to the tradition that was handed on to us, to use the words of Paul. God's plan certainly involves transforming this world. But we ask with Kathy this morning, is that something that's going to happen later? Is that a process that's already started? Is it going to be here on this earth or interior to the human heart or beyond our imagining in planes of light that we can that we will never see with our mortal eyes? I firmly believe that the scriptural answer is always yes. All of them. Above and beyond. 
Will God cause the former things to no longer be remembered? Yes. Will God's actions in the past and our response to them stand as a testimony for eternity? Also yes. These apparent contradictions hold true when you understand that they are spoken by different people in different ways, all of them attempting to express the same achingly hopeful, ever-resilient, surviving spirit of Christ. And that while some people may need to know that history bears with it continuity, others may need to know that they are freed from their past. And both of these are true. As we leave this place and go into our week, I I want us all to carry Rebecca with us. The story of someone who would have come in to see Jesus, who would have seen the destruction of the temple and seen the destruction of the people, experienced the destruction of her own heart, and seen how Jesus' words were borne out Verily, truly, both on the world stage and in her own mind. We see it ourselves. And when we can, in brief moments of peace and perspective, see how God's words are layered upon this world, bearing fruit on many levels. And I think perhaps our blurry impression of God's coming kingdom does come to be a little bit sharper and clearer.